If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is, uh, this is not The Godfather, but you should still listen to me when I tell you to uh, listen to the 430 Movie Podcast. It's at 430movie.com, and they'll make you a podcast you can't refuse. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a Star Trek fan and you haven't already picked up the hardcover edition of The 50-Year Mission, it's time for you to go out and get the paperback version of The 50-Year Mission, which is just out in paperback from St. Martin's Press. This is the complete oral history of Star Trek, the first 25 years, from me and Ed Gross. And if you think you know everything there is to know about Star Trek, think again. The 50-Year Mission, out in paperback now. And if you can't read, the audiobook is still available. Electric Now? What does that mean? It means that you can watch us do these wonderful podcasts and so many other things, too. Hey, uh, Darren. Yes. When I was a kid, I used to love The Electric Company. You know why? Because I knew one day Morgan Freeman would be a great actor. But <laughs> if there's one thing I love about electricity that's even better than Schoolhouse Rock and The Electric Company, it's the Electric Now channel. But also, they're turning it on and bringing the power. Yes, they are. <laughs> and we're turning you on. And No, 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 no. that's a highly <laughs> inappropriate. All. Okay, well, we are turning on the power here at Electric Surge, where you may have, for the last year or so, been enjoying these amazing audio podcasts like Inglorious Trexperts, The 430 Movie, Best Movies Never Made. Now, you, you can watch You ain't them. seen nothing yet, no, but you now you can. <laughs> you can on... Electric Now, available on Stir TV and Distro TV, which you can download from your favorite app store, and soon coming to the Electric Now app. Get to see us as you've never seen us before, <laughs> because you've only seen us in the theater of the imagination. Now we're going to be on your tablet, on your telephone, on your TV, and in your house. With <laughs> the call is coming from inside the house. So make sure to check out Electric Now, streaming now on Stir TV and Distro TV and coming soon to the Electric Now app. Okay. Hello, I'm Mark A. Altman. <laughs> and I'm Darren Docterman. <laughs> and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And you can say it with me at any time. <laughs> <laughs> we are indeed the Inglorious Trexperts. And we are so excited about today's show because w this is the culmination of a year celebrating the 40th anniversary of our beloved Star Trek The Motion Picture. And to, to sort of finally resolve a f this 40-year odyssey, we have a really great group of special guests who are going to talk about the genius of Star Trek. And then you may say, what is there left to say? Haven't you said it all? Well, we haven't. And we're going to say a few more things <laughs> as we, we close the book on Star Trek The Motion Picture and begin our countdown to For the now. celebration of <laughs> Star Trek II in 2022. So um, I'm, I'm thrilled once again, the writer of Thor and X-Men First Class, producer on uh, Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles, Lore and Black Sails is back with us. Ashley E. Miller, welcome back, Ashley. Thank you for having me. And of course, on loan from the Burnett work, he is the man with the plan, the man with the mouth, the man who says it all and what he's thinking. And, and you could 
check him out no on YouTube. <laughs> He's the uh, writer and director of Free Enterprise. He is, of course, Robert Meyer Burnett. Welcome back. I feel very outclassed on this panel, I have to say, but Man. I'm, I'm very honored to be here. You know, I really have a thing about them using the word visionary. It's like from the visionary director of Police Academy 7. You know, it's just like, <laughs> I, I, I hate that. There are very few people that qualify as a visionary, but our next guest, I have no problem them using the word visionary because he truly is a visionary. He He's an auteur in a medium that does eats up and spits out auteurs. He has made some of the great shows of our time. And he's a Star Trek fan. He started on Star Trek. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. And he's the mind behind the shows as Hannibal, uh, the first season of American Gods, uh, Wonder Falls, um, Dead Like Me, Pushing Daisies. Um, and uh, he started on a show that's still beloved to him. We're not going to talk about that today because we have some other business, uh, unfinished business. He is, of course, Brian Fuller. Brian, welcome to Inglorious Hello. Strikes. Oh, thank you for having me. I was hoping that you would pronounce visionary as visionary. Oh, well, <laughs> you know. What welcome. can I say? It's good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here on this prestigious panel. Well, you know, it's funny because you guys, um, for a long time, it's it's you couldn't talk about your love of Star Trek when you were working on the show. It's like you, you sort of people like Ron and and everyone who 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 loves Star Trek kind of got you know sideways glances you know for 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 loving Star Trek. Dave Rossi talked about it a lot. So you know, it's nice you could come out and express your love of Star Trek. I, I think I was I I was out. Uh, for a while, it was it was interesting because it was such a a strange juxtaposition for people working on Star Trek to have such kind of odd disdain for it and disdain for the culture around it and disdain for the fandom mm -hmm. because that's what was their bread and butter. And I have never had any shame for loving Star Trek, and I always found it such an odd thing that people would uh, work on a show that they felt was beneath them. But, you know, that's all posturing. Mm -hmm. The show wasn't beneath any of those assholes. They just thought <laughs> it was <laughs> and wanted people to think it was, right. but it wasn't. It was just, a, it's just, it's just macho posturing for some of them. Well, before we get to, to the significance of, of Star Trek The Motion Picture, tell us why you became a Star Trek fan, how you first discovered Star Trek. I first discovered Star Trek because my oldest brother was a big Star Trek fan, and I remember one night when I was too young to go to church, and he had somehow got out of going to church, and he had built a D7 uh, Klingon cruiser model and rigged it with a light, and he had shut off all the, the lights in the house and was flying it through... Uh, the hallways, and I just thought, what is this magical thing that you're nice. holding, and where does it come from? And, you know, he wasn't necessarily a supportive brother, and uh, so I had to kind of find out for myself. Mm. He was sort of like, you know, buzz off. And then when I caught the original series, what I loved most about it was their their love of including horror in some of their stories. And I remember uh, Devil in the Dark was probably the first episode that I saw, and I was like, this is a horror movie. This is fantastic. Yeah. Those things are eating people. This is wonderful. And I've always loved science fiction that, that mixed itself with horror. Yeah. Schmitter burnt to a crisp. Poor guy. <laughs> Poor Schmitter. <laughs> I know. It had such an impact on us all as kids, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, all these people who are just being completely incinerated. And, yeah. And then the, the, the attack ultimate... Pizza. The ultimate attack pizza. <laughs> but the Lasagna. sounds that it made, 
the sound effects of the horda and the, the, the scraping of going through the rock. It was just, awesome. it was terrifying. It was great. And the ultimate Twilight Zone-like twist that it was just a mother protecting her young. And it's such a powerful statement about, you know, against xenophobia and attacking that which we don't understand. And, you know, Super pro-family. <laughs> super pro family that 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 is true and of course not without my eggs <laughs> you know to see the raw emotion on Shatner and and on Leonard as he does the the the, the mind melt uh, it's just a remarkable i mean you, and the the fact that there is no self-consciousness there you know another actor may be like you know i'm i'm talking to a i'm reading the mind of a walking carpet you know and yeah. it's that but he just owns that moment yep. he throws the himself in and, uh, and 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 you know a lot of people say you know that in in a way was the sort of origin of the Shatner Nimoy feud in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. Shatner sort of made a joke about Leonard uh, right. uh, get this man an aspirin get, right and uh, and Leonard who would you know given a hundred and ten percent to that scene really resented you know Shatner having fun at his expense when he's you know given everything he has to that moment girl he should joke. talk. <laughs> <laughs> so a, a great scene so you, you saw Devil in the Dark and, and then you know what, what happened after that you, you start reading the books or uh, you know, I got into the photo novels mm. which I still have to this day mm-hmm. and I just enjoyed the storytelling and the camaraderie and I was a little resistant to Kirk because he was too much of a ladies man and I didn't relate to him mm-hmm. but I related to Spock I related to McCoy I I you know of course were most identified with Chekhov as you know in season Two mm-hmm. when he came around because he yep. wasn't in season one, right? <laughs> no, um, and I really just enjoyed like the Twilight Zone, the adventure and the storytelling, the fact that they didn't have these strict parameters. In the house that I grew up in, the best actors were Charles Brownson and Clint Eastwood, who mm. were non-expressive, non-emotive. Right. So there was a very narrow chasm in which stories could be told in my house. And what I loved about both Star Trek and The Twilight Zone is that they didn't care about those parameters. They ran out into the field to tell stories in the way that they haven't been told before. What was it specifically? Because, you know, you don't hear a lot of people say, Chekhov was my favorite. I'm, I'm curious. What was it about Chekhov that I'm sure Walter will love this episode? What what did you um, what was it about Chekhov that you gravitate you gravitated towards Chekhov? Well, because he was young and relatively inexperienced and he was a tryhard as mm-hmm. opposed to, you know, just being a guy who knew how to do his job. And I, I related as somebody who was the youngest in the family mm. and so he was the youngest on the crew right. and I thought that I mean it was clearly the marketing worked and clearly the idea of like we need a character that appeals to the youngsters yeah. like they got me hook line and sinker with like sugar cereals and you liked his wig I liked his wig I wasn't mad at the wig <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, you know um Obviously, Spock is such a dynamic character, and uh, the fact that, you know, it's been said many times, he's a man of two worlds, and he's a man who doesn't have emotions, but really he has tremendous emotions that he's just repressing. I mean, you know, what was it about Spock that you you thought, this is a really unique character on television? Well, you know, also, very personally speaking, I, I grew up in a very tumultuous, emotional, sometimes violent uh, home, and I loved that he just didn't get rattled mm-hmm. unless he was horny. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> so 
you're reading the photo novels, you're watching the show, you're really loving. What, what are some of the other shows you were watching at the time? You remember? Was there anything? The Munsters mm-hmm. was a big one, and I loved that once again like Star Trek and The Twilight Zone, it was taking kind of family-friendly themes and elevating them through genre, which I always found a a great delivery mechanism. It's the brownie and the marijuana brownie that gets the sugar into your system (laughs) and delivers the THC correctly. So I, I, I just love genre's ability to transcend certain kind of, uh, common realities and Mm. recalibrate a story so that it was new and fresh just because it put it in circumstances that weren't my everyday. Right, right. And and then the road to, do you remember what it was like, that road to Star Trek, the motion picture? I mean, uh, when you first saw it and and when you first heard about it and and how you discovered it? Well, I was nine and I was obsessed with Alien because the Alien photo novel came right. out. And the, the, I, no, it was the, the illustrated scale. story, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, no, no, it was, it was the, the photo large, novel. It was the large size right. photo right. novel. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I, had, I still have one. Me too. Um, and <laughs> it was in the grocery store, and I always hid it behind uh, all the magazines. So and no one would, so no one would take it. So whenever my mother took me to the grocery store, I was just sitting there reading the uh, the photo novel, and that's what really uh, sparked my love of production design. Mm-hmm. And so when um, I guess my first exposure to to Star Trek were the the motion picture was the action figures. So mm. I'd seen uh, the trailers, and I w- and once again it was marketed a bit like a horror film because there was a big monster coming for us, and and the Enterprise was the only yep. thing between us and the monster. And I thought that was fantastic and really gripping. And also, I love that the Klingons were were redesigned and looked more alien. And the when I finally did see it on cable, uh, the beginning with the Klingons is my favorite opening to any Star Trek film mm-hmm. because they expose you to an alien race. They're speaking a different language, right. and they look alien and the visual effects sequences just watching that last night it's beautiful you know where every penny of those 46 million dollars went for that budget because the the effects are such wonderful world building so um i was obsessed with the klingon action figure which my parents wouldn't let me have so i stole it and uh that's what you get sorry uh, give me what I want. Um, and when I finally saw the film, I, I just, I, it really resonated with me as a horror film and a horror story at the, <laughs> at, at the same time that it was exploring great human qualities mm-hmm. of each of these characters. I mean, sometimes to a flaw. You know, the, there is, uh, you know, moments in the film where I was like, that's great character building, but I can see how it's, it's dragging the narrative. Mm-hmm. But I still, I was transported. And successfully, as opposed to, <laughs> as opposed to the the horrible mistake at the beginning of the film, where they're forming those two wonderful people you, are turned inside out. <laughs> had you been tracking sort of the the Odyssey to the screen? You know, obviously Starlog had Susan Sackett's column right. about and all that, and he's like, "Oh, it's a TV series, it's a movie, it's a TV series, it's a movie, it's a movie, it's coming out. Maybe it's not. It is." <laughs> did you did you did you follow any of that, or was I that... was following it loosely, like I was aware that there was going to be a Star Trek two 
television series. And I was aware that uh, the officer on the space station that gets downloaded was supposed to be the new Vulcan. Right. And I was sort of, I was aware, was it David? David Cotreau. right. Um, so I was aware of some of those things, but I was uh, more, I, I don't think my Star Trek passion was really ignited until actually seeing the film. Mm, right. So that's when I was like, oh, this is this is great because I loved Star Wars, but Star Wars felt like it was for everybody and it was, had this kind of wonderful accessibility. And Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I thought, was was much more of a horror film, mm. um, particularly the, the abduction of Barry and a lot like the first two acts of that movie play like a horror film. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I like was really connecting to. And then, of course, Alien was probably my Star Wars, sure. you know, more than Star Wars was, even sure. though I was tall and I had a parka, so I was always Chewbacca on the, <laughs> the playground. But I wanted to play Ripley and the Alien, and right. nobody got it because they weren't reading the photo novel because I hit it so successfully. <laughs> <laughs> You, you didn't want to be Tom Skerritt? I, you know, I, I wanted to be Ripley. I wanted to be, I thought she was the coolest. You know, as a, yeah. as a little gay boy, I didn't uh, resonate with male characters. That's why I didn't like, the more male and macho characters were, the less I connected to them, which is why I, I loved Kirk, but I never connected with him. Right, right. Um, I connected with the Bionic Woman. I connected with Wonder Woman. I connected with Princess Leah. I connected with Jean Vieux-Bougeold from Coma. <laughs> and I connected with Ripley. Those were my heroes of the time because, you know, straight male characters, I didn't see myself in them in any way, shape, or form. And I resonated with the female character. So Chekhov and Uhura, even though Uhura didn't have much to do, I was always captivated by her because she was a strong presence on the screen mm-hmm. and she wasn't a straight man. Right. right. And Darren, you connect with Parker, but you always want to know about the bonus situation. I do. Yeah. <laughs> so. I do. I mean, I, we got to talk about that sometime. That's just, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> the bonus situation. And Ripley's a final girl. She's yeah. one of the great yeah. final yeah. girls, you She's, know, and when yeah. that, in that era, Alien predated, well, Friday the 13th, but it was after Halloween. You had Halloween come out with the ultimate final girl right. in Jamie Lee Curtis. But I, like you, I mean, I, Alien was a revelation for me. I mean, I was a horror fan, but I loved science fiction more, but seeing Alien in the theater was. I'd never seen no one had ever seen anything like that there the tone of it the look of it and I think that um, you know one of the things about Star Trek the motion picture Star Trek the motion picture came out Alien was released in April of 79 Mm -hmm. and then motion picture came out of course in December of 79 so it was that I think the one-two punch of both of those movies that solidified for me at least I mean movies were it I mean I loved Star Wars but I wanted to make movies more than ever after seeing, and a lot of it had to do with the way that both those movies looked. Well, the production design on the motion picture is fantastic. And also the cinematography, just looking at it last night, uh, it's interesting because I love Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. I think it's an amazing movie. But it, you can tell uh, you know, Nick Meyer's a boy on a budget in that film, and it is a fraction of the cost. And you really see the world building in motion picture and the cinematography and the costumes and the richness of the colors that they use. It was, it's a feast for the eyes in many ways. When you were a kid and saw the motion picture for the first time, 
Did the transition between the way the original series looked and the motion picture look, did it bother you? How did you feel? I you loved remember? it. I loved it. I thought it was I an did upgrade. Too. I did too. And I loved the look of the original series. I loved the, the color palette. But there was something really, you know, in watching it last night, I was just like, this is beautifully lit. Kirk has never looked as good as he has That's in true. the motion picture. He's got pretty long lashes. His skin <laughs> is great. He's fit as fuck. And it, like, I was like, oh, this is the first time that I actually found him sexy. as Because as, I didn't find him sexy on the original series. Um, but, uh, you know, watching it, I was just like, he is a good-looking man. Well, and he really got into shape for that. And that, Absolutely. And the Bob Fletcher wardrobe also really, I mean, a lot of people make fun of the pajamas, but Chatner in particular looks great in that Admiral <laughs> Mm-hmm. Outfit that he wears at the beginning of the uh, the beginning of the picture. It's interesting because like he he's got that nice like cool gray blue with the white uh, chest and his his uniform is so uh, well fitted for him and anybody who had the the uniform that had the the longer uh, um, uh, tunic or, tor- right. or torso looked good. The ones in the pajamas, it's distracting and evident of the 70s and and se- 70s were all about showing your dick like it, it is even like, for the women like guys <laughs> would like bleach and brush their crotches to accentuate uh that aesthetic and there are so many bobbing peens all over that movie <laughs> that i find it just like you know uh it's no zardoz it's no Zardoz, <laughs> no. But that's a leather uh, uh, a crotch piece. But there's a lot of loose shaking. We know which side Commander Decker dresses to. That's yes, all. yes. It's, well, and sometimes it's right out the middle, like uh, Leah's nipples described in the novel. That's right. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting Point because right when you were talking about Alien, it made me think that you know we've kind of talked about Star Trek the motion picture in a vacuum all year. You know, uh, uh, other than the occasional Space is a vacuum, other than the occasional <laughs> joke about the black hole, right? Right, which we've acknowledged came out two weeks later, right. and we've talked about that a little bit. But when you really think about when 1979 being such a seminal year, and for you, you know, Alien, arguably more impactful than any any film that came out that year. But it was also the year, you know, being there, Apocalypse Now. For me, Manhattan was a huge, huge seminal movie. Not Dawn when I saw Dead. it in 79. Yes, yes. Yeah, all like, 12 versions of it. But right. you know, you could also <laughs> even the Muppet movie was seventy nine, oh, and you know how much, and the Warriors, you know. So these are all movies that I think were really seminal for us, you know, at that age, you know, or or subsequently. And it really was a great year for movies. It was a wonderful year for movies. Of being course, there. of course, in Star Trek: The Motion Picture, jumping to warp is the real rainbow connection. It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> you know, one of the things I wanted to hear you sort of uh, pontificate about is that. It was unheard of for a major studio to take the cast of a television show that went off the air 10 years previously and put them in what, which was at the time one of the most expensive movies ever made. But at the same time, the function of that was it created a continuity. Right. The, 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 yes, we had the menagerie showed us the cage, but that was the first leap in Star Trek continuity that was amazing. But this, showing us these same actors, bringing them back, Updating the ship, updating the uniforms, updating the whole universe created, I think, the, the beginning of what is modern continuity in storytelling, mm-hmm. especially in genre storytelling. And you you did something amazing with continuity on Hannibal where you were able to flip and change continuity, but it seemed 
very much of a piece. Like I, when I saw Hannibal, which is one of my favorite TV shows of all time, I was astonished as someone who's read Thomas Harris's books how you were able to change things and yet still make it feel of a piece that it, you had continuity. How did the continuity of Star Trek: The Motion Picture and the fact that it updated the universe but still kept it the same? How has that affected you in your storytelling over the years? And, and Star Trek as a whole, how do you feel about the continuity of the show? And what does that all mean? And do we need continuity? I think I think continuity is is a double edged sword in some ways. I think you know with what I loved about the motion picture was that time had passed. And they really told that story visually and through its characters. You see how Kirk is a guy who hasn't been out in space for a while. And this isn't the ship that he left. And he wants it back. And just like the So in a way, Kirk was the audience. We wanted those characters mm-hmm. back. We wanted this world back. And what was so beautiful about someone like Robert Wise, who is an incredibly elegant filmmaker... To have him take the helm and really deliver a a Kubrickian interpretation of Star Trek as opposed to a Lucusian? I think it's Lucasian. A Lucasian? A You know, a kind of, you know, frothy, fun uh, fantasy. You took somebody who was much more of an intellectual filmmaker and applied a thoughtful interpretation to Star Trek and and provided the audience that new look that was not different. It was just time had passed mm-hmm. and technology had advanced. Yeah I, yeah, I like wholeheartedly. I wanted more. Now, there's this the cliche, the easy dismissal that people say, oh, it's the motionless picture. It's slow. I mean, Harlan Ellison, I think, was the person who started that. Um, he back. eviscerated the he film. He eviscerated the movie. He's always a generous audience. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, clearly, you know, it, 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 we would take issue, all of us on the, would take issue on that. What do you feel the merits are about the film? Why does the film work? Why is it unique? And I think before we started, you talked about it as a flawed masterpiece. And I wonder if you can speak to that point. Well, I think one of the reasons that it works narratively, just as you know, somebody who's been in writers' rooms for twenty years and really has grown accustomed to kicking the tires when it comes to characters being the story, you really have this wonderful parallel storytelling between Spock and V'ger, mm-hmm. both people who come from other worlds that went to new worlds, tried to adapt to them, and then somehow tried to go home again without uh, ultimate success mm-hmm. in, in so many ways. So what was really resonating with me last night when I was watching it again was how airtight the character storytelling was. For Kirk, he had a wonderful arc that was uh, juxtaposed with this young upstart version of himself that was, you know, a a more modern, advanced version of himself, less, you know, kind of libidoized, although when uh, Ilea comes in, that's 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 arguable. Um, so I felt like there was I Kirk had a wonderful story that was continually uh, reinforced by the plotting, even when they do warp and they fall into the wormhole and there's the meteor 
at which is a very kind of indulgent sequence. Like you could remove that and sure. have like the movie would go on probably at a, a, a pacier pace. But what it does provide for the audience is showing that Captain Kirk is flawed. Captain right. Kirk is is not the man that he used to be and needs to re-experience and regrow as a leader because he's fallen out of practice and his, the support of his friendship with McCoy is somebody who is the truth teller and has his ear and says you've gone too far in this moment you need to check yourself I found all of that really wonderfully charming and you know, I love the trilogy of Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock, Voyage Home. I think it's all about friendship and their Star Trek Three, which is, you know, you know, a, a flawed film. Uh, you feel its restrictions of budget, but I cry more in Star Trek Three than I've cried in any Star Trek film because mm. there are real emotional moments that are earned over the course of those four mm. films that really say we are paying attention we are being thoughtful we are putting ourselves as storytellers in the position of the characters and asking ourselves what would we do what is human and what is authentic and i really feel that the motion picture did that i don't think it was lazy at all in its storytelling i think it really tried to batten down all the hatches and tell a good character story at the same time as telling a big science fiction epic well to speak to that the end of the film you have a, a family that's fractured at the beginning of Star Trek, the motion picture, and this adventure puts that family, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, back mm -hmm. together. And these are men that don't want to, other than Kirk, he wants to be on the Enterprise. Spock certainly doesn't want to be there. McCoy doesn't want to be there. And at the end of the motion picture, it sort of tees up, like you said, that trilogy of friendship. Mm -hmm. The friendship is, even at the end, when you, you see McCoy and Spock standing behind Kirk on the bridge as they're sort of looking out into space before out there that away, you really feel that moment that we're back. It's a, it's a warm, fuzzy mm -hmm. moment, and it, it's incredibly, up, I find it to be incredibly uplifting. And without that, we wouldn't have had a film series that could have gone on about like what you had said, friendship. Yeah, and and I think that's the 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 true emotional center of Star Trek is friendship and the friendship of those people and and you know those three in particular because they you know represent different aspects of of personality and sort of a a a, a Greco Roman kind of fabulistic way. So whenever I I think about the the power of those friendships, I get I get misty-eyed because there's something so beautiful about that authentic friendship between these three men coming from completely different perspectives and yet finding a common place where they love each other, respect each other and go on adventures. Right. I I agree with with all of that, what I find interesting about the the analysis of Kirk is that it suggests that at the end of the motion picture, um, he's learned some lessons about where he belongs and where he does not belong. Where he belongs is the bridge of the Enterprise, surrounded by these people. Yet, interestingly, at the top of Star Trek II, we found that he's repeated an old mistake. Mm -hmm. um, but what's really interesting is his arc through Star Trek II is not the same as it is in the in the motion picture. Mm -hmm. I mean, here, he, in the beginning of the motion picture, he comes in and he's basically telling Will Decker, it's like, yep, you know, they gave her back to me, Will. You know, it's like, she's mine. And, you know, in The Wrath of Khan, he comes in, he's like, no, Spock, no, no, no. It's like, the Enterprise is your ship, right? Spock has to kind of beg him off. Now, I think we all believe that, that Kirk, you know, really kind of wanted to go sit in that chair. And, it's his first best destiny. Yeah, it is his first <laughs> best destiny. But I just, I find that, I find that interesting, um, that that was where that film 
started. They didn't really the Star Trek two didn't really begin where the motion picture ended. Right. Few years transpired. That's true. Yeah, but it, it, it's it's interesting because I think by the end of Star Trek One, what you're saying, Brian, is it sort of puts the chess pieces back on the board where they were at the end of the series. And what a lot of people don't like about Star Trek: The Motion Picture, and I don't think they realize is what they don't like, is that the characters it are start the way that yeah, it was that they're the show. so bitter, yeah. they're so embittered, right? You know, because Kirk, you know, isn't doing what he loves. He's like them working a desk job when he'd yeah. rather be off doing something. You know, he's working they're in the office. Popping galaxies. Yeah, yeah. they're and, imbalanced, just like the warp engines. Yeah, uh, right. and and, and you know, when so they all come together, it's it's the visual the representation of the character, and the yes, audience yes. loves to see an emotional Spock, like good in, storytelling. You know, Marriott yeah, Hartley. Exactly. You know, when he breaks down Marriott Hartley in all her yesterdays, right. and here Spock's gone the other way. He's right. he's trying to eradicate all remaining emotion. Yeah. It's like they, no, they don't want that. They we want to know that one day maybe we can hook up with Spock. That he's you know right. they want to see Spock break down like in this side of paradise. But instead, you know, um, I've you know given the engine you know warp the warp ingredients to the to the engineer. They don't want to see that, yeah. right? And and D Kelly is just you know it's fine when he's a curmudgeon, but when he's like. Bitter, when yeah. He, you yeah. Know, when he's a, when he's a big I'm drafted, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's wearing Gora. big gold jewelry. It looks like he's just got off the set of The Sopranos. You know, it's <laughs> it's like uh, they don't want to see that. Yeah. But you know what's so interesting is, yet you have the moment at the end where Spock, after the mind meld with V'ger, takes Kirk literally by the hand, yeah. and says, "This simple feeling is beyond V'ger's mm-hmm. comprehension." Mm-hmm. That to me. Might be coming up later. uh, (laughs) It's one of the most wonderful moments in all of Star Trek because it's Spock who takes Kirk's hand. And that is so like, you've never seen that before. And it's acknowledging the importance of friendship. And from the beginning when he stepped onto the the Enterprise to that moment, that journey of Spock's that he makes in the movie to me is one of the most wonderful. It's the culmination of the Spock character from all the series. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's his realization as a complete being. Well, it's... You know, he is uh, at the beginning of that movie. He is trying to put aside an entire part of himself that right. he he doesn't understand. Right? He thought that by by shutting it out, that that was the same as grappling with it. That was the same as as processing it. And what he learns through his interaction with V'ger is that that's impossible. That's almost the definition of insanity. And V'ger goes through a very similar arc. You know, V'ger has to make contact with something terrible. that is imperfect and human. Um, and also makes a choice because of emotions. Will Decker doesn't make a logical choice to join with V'ger and Ilya. He makes an emotional choice. I mean, that to me is like is is the thing that um, that really makes the motion picture worth watching again and again. And it was Ellison who said the ending had no balls because it should have been Kirk, you know, and not some supporting guest character. I disagree. Yeah, you know, I think that I Harlan was congenitally cranky about many things. <laughs> well, I think what's what's so wonderful about the parallel of Spock's journey with Beecher's journey is that, you know, it is often said that we can't really deal with our childhood trauma unless we have children and can work out a certain understanding and empathy with our parents and a forgiveness. So in many ways, Beecher is a childlike figure for Spock who sees himself in Beecher and then is able to accept the emotion because he understands what this child is as yet incapable of until it takes the form of Ilea and is reacting to her memories and her associations as being a sexually and intellectually heightened individual, 
that he sees, oh, I don't want to be like V'ger. I have to find my own path. I have to forgive myself. I have to heal myself because V'ger is showing me something that I couldn't show myself. Well, you know, let me talk about trauma for a second because I was talking to another dad recently who was showing uh, Star Wars to their kid for the first time and they start with episode one, you know, with Phantom Menace. And I'm like, what an asshole. how do you do that to, to a kid? You know, because not only is it an abysmal film, but, you know, one of the great, you know, since Rosebud, one of the great reveals in the history of cinema is I am your father, right? And I think, I'm going somewhere with this, that the <laughs> Star Trek The Motion Picture doesn't get the credit it deserves for the twist of it being uh, the Voyager probe at the end. Yeah. Now, we forget in retrospect right. what it was like to see that in 1979 you know, I know you guys read the novelization before you right. saw the movie. Mm-hmm. I didn't, so for me it was a surprise. <laughs> and, I was wondering uh, where all the sex And that was, was a great, that was a great twist. You yeah. know, it was a really, uh, it, you know, look, I wasn't thinking about the Changeling back then. You know, it was like, oh my God, it's it's the Voyager probe, which was very much in the news then. Yeah. You know, uh, the the two Voyager probes having been been launched. So that was like a crazy twist that you know I think is another thing that's great about the movie, but loses its potency. Much like when you say today. Oh, I am your father. Of course, Darth Vader is. You know, we all know that it's part of the popular culture. And uh, but but I I think that was a very imaginative, and that was the genesis of that movie because it came from Robots Return, which was an Alan Dean Foster concept for Genesis Two, which never got made. Right. And that was that was uh, a great twist. It's great storytelling, and once again, it. It parallels Spock's story of here's this machine that traveled the galaxy, found a machine planet, and that machine planet gave it a new perspective on itself and then drove it back. I've got to meet my maker now that I have a, a, a greater understanding of who I am. Now that I have the ability to fulfill my mission. Right. right. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, Brian, because your career has been um, characterized by just beautiful, brilliant, painterly visuals, uh, Voyager being the notable exception. And uh, so I want to I want to ask you, because this is a film a lot of people, again, dismiss out of hand and say, oh, they're just looking at the view screen for 20 minutes and it's boring and slow. Some of those Douglas Trumbull effects oh, are, are some beautiful. of the most stunning images in any motion picture. And I'd love to know, sort of, you know, given your eye and, and your visual aesthetic, you know, how does it, particularly seeing it on the big screen, how does that strike you? It's candy. It's wonderful candy. The The introduction as the, of the Enterprise as a character is very uh, male gazy in, in that it is you're looking at its gams, you're coming around, you're circling it, you're looking it up and down. But it gives it, me an erection it, every time. Because it's gorgeous. <laughs> it's gorgeous. And I think it doesn't go on long. Long enough because what I think Robert Wise was doing in the filmmaking in indulging Trumbull was we want to be in Captain Kirk's point of view. This is the first time he's seeing his old love. Mm -hmm. So he wants to take it all in, give him the opportunity, give him the time to absorb that, allow the audience to set in the character's point of view for however long it takes to emotionally settle into that moment before he turns to Scotty and says, thank you very much for right. showing that. And it's it's incredibly emotional by the time he does say thank you and all of the, you know, the intercutting with his reaction, I didn't think was indulgent as much as it was 
authentic. He was trying to put you into the shoes of the character. And I think when that when you can take advantage of aesthetic and those visual effects, it's Star Trek has never looked as good as it does with that introduction of the Enterprise. And it is beautiful. It is a beautiful ship. And we get to see the ship, how Kirk sees the ship. And I think that's the power of good storytelling. And it's so effective that, I mean, almost every Star Trek movie, there's a part of me that just longs for a moment like that. Even if it's something like Generations, I sort of, I longed for some sort of a love letter to the Enterprise D, especially because they were about to destroy her. Right. Or when the Enterprise E was introduced, something that sort of gave us not just that, you know, that sense of, you know, we're beginning this movie and this is the scale of this thing, but something, as you say, that kind of puts us into um, a character POV that kind of establishes right. a relationship between you know, our hero and the the ships, which to me are always so important Mm -hmm. and us as the audience, because, you know, that's the other, I I think the sort of the shadow POV in that, that scene, because, you know, for we, the audience having not seen the enterprise and never seeing this enterprise before, you know, we needed that moment or I needed that moment to bond with it. And now I just, I, I long for it. I, I miss it. Well, which is why I really bonded with the Defiant on Deep Space yeah. Nine, because they introduced that ship as a savior coming in. It was the muscle that they needed to fight the Dominion, and it was introduced in a couple of fantastic episodes where you're getting to know it. There's some problems. You have this Romulan engineer who's coming aboard with the cloaking device, and it wasn't—I mean, nobody has done the Enterprise like the motion picture has done the yeah. Enterprise, and nobody has introduced a ship like that movie. You know, it's funny that you say that because even after the motion picture, they never could figure out how to shoot the Enterprise mm-hmm. properly. Right. There's never a good, uh, in all of the Star Trek movies, even when they released, they showed the Enterprise D, the Enterprise E, they never gave us any kind of candy shots where we could stand back and look at those ships and be like, wow, they never shot the refit Enterprise in Star Trek 2, 3, 4, 5, or 6. Right. The way they shot, it just doesn't look right. It, it never has looked, I don't know if because the camera, you know how the difference right, between right. going from a camera from here to here is. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, how and it right can change the, whole, the right yeah. lens. And, and Trumbull knew what he was doing. Oh, God, he, sure he, was, he was masterful. Yeah. The, Ender, the Enterprise has never looked as good as it does in that movie. And there's never been a better looking Enterprise than that. No. Than no that, it's that it's my favorite Enterprise. And uh, it's not easy to, uh, I mean, there have been so many different iterations, but nothing has come close. Mm-mm. Um, there is no comparison. There is no comparison. <laughs> Indeed, there is not. And it, also, we haven't talked at all in any of these shows about the Bob Peak, uh, or the beautiful Bob Peak uh, one sheet. Oh, yeah. yes, great yes. art. Gorgeous. That, that had some controversy in the fact that they have Ilea's face in it. And a lot of people say, well, she's a new character. Why, why would you put her in there? Why not have Dr. McCoy there? Sex cells. Exactly. And also, this is something mysterious. We, we've never met her before. So it's sort of, and, you know, letting you say, oh, what is this? This is interesting. But, we'll go also, watch it. And also, she represents V'ger. Yes. Right? Yes. And yeah. isn't that That's fascinating correct. that V'ger picks, of, of all of the possible hosts he could have picked, right. he picks a character who, who by design as a Delton, right, gets so into your head, is so empathic, is so right. not Spock. Yes. Um, that this robotic, the most human, it, right? Arguably. The most human in, in so many ways. He, Vidra becomes her, 
that to me is is just it's right. fascinating. It's interesting. It, it tells us something. That that to me is a is a clue in the story of what Viger was really seeking. She had to register her vagina with the Federation, right? As a, as a lethal weapon, because like, it's that crazy. <laughs> she had to take it off. Not yeah. so crazy yeah, when not you think about who wrote my it. Vagina. Right. 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 Yeah. Not yeah. while I'm on this ship. Right. <laughs> well, of course, you know uh, Roddenberry goes in in the in the novel goes into talking about how uh, physical love between Deltans and humans causes the humans to become uh, basically vegetables because the experience is so um, connecting and so uh, um, wonderfully overwhelming to a human that they are useless for anything else ever again. And that's why the oath of celibacy has to happen between uh, Deltans and uh, and. How is there not Earth a Delton people? Empire like after that? Because I, they're I mean, too busy on their planet you know, playing around. <laughs> well, there like is there like in the in the cargo bay scene when they're looking at the uh, the Vijor attack on the station is there's a it looks like a, a male Delton in the front row and right. he's hot as fuck. <laughs> and he's, you know, got a shaved head and I was like, who's that? Um, so it's interesting, you know, all that 70s stuff with a, a heightened awareness and connectivity to sexuality, right. the kind of, you know, before AIDS put everybody back in their shame closets, right. there was this wonderful openness about sexuality is healthy, sexuality is normal, sexuality should be celebrated, it is not a negative thing. And so much of our culture now, if you look at even porn from the 70s versus porn now, the porn now is about degradation, mm. like that the kids are being exposed to. And the porn in the 70s was really about connection and fun and a celebration of the physical. So it really was evolved thinking in a way to have a Delton character. It wasn't just lascivious, I don't right. think. Right. I think it was about, look, this is an aspect of, of the human condition that we are taught to be ashamed of. And here is a culture that celebrates it. And is so good at it that it will blow your mind literally. Right. Yeah, it's sex positive versus just exploitative. Well, in right. a way, it's right. also Star Trek The Motion Picture as a whole was the last time, I think, this might be controversial, that Star Trek was made for real adults. Right. Mm -hmm. Everything else was sort of infantilized. It was it was archetypes. It was let's do storytelling that doesn't have the nuance. Let's have a picnic in the cargo bay. I, I mean, it was not. <laughs> these are these were and what I loved about. I was twelve when I saw Star Trek: The Motion Picture at the John Dance Theater in Bellevue, Washington. When I saw it, I remember thinking to myself, "This is about the people that I want to grow up to be." And I always felt that about Star Trek, but it seemed like they were the most adult they've ever been. Mm -hmm. Right in the motion picture, and it was always pulled back after that. It, right. They never felt as smart or or adult as they do in that movie. It's and sophisticated. It's very sophisticated. And I think that Star Trek really has missed that kind of sophistication, especially lately. I agree. It's funny, though. It, it kind of, you talk about the sexuality of Star Trek, the G-rated Star Trek, but how it, it also takes its cues from Logan's run. You know, That's if right. you look at that first scene, um, you know, production design, or certainly costume design, is very Logan's run. It's very Dallas Apparel Mart. And uh, and then you, you know you also have you know the sexuality in Logan's Run with the new you shop and the the um, the love sh the love shack yeah, the, love the love shop. with love, Farrah Fawcett yeah. or where they're running through another the PG movie where they're you know running through and 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 orgies are going on and all stuff but it, it's very Roddenberry esque and, and yeah. you can see sort of some of Logan's Run and even Jerry Goldsmith of course right. although the score is very different in. Um, 
you know, in Star Trek and that 70s kind of sci-fi storytelling, which is really turned on its head in the 80s because it feels like the impact of Star Wars doesn't really hit until the 80s films. Right. It's like there's not a lot of, you know, other than the quickies like Message from Space and Starship Invasions, the Cashton films, it doesn't feel like the big budget films are really being impacted by Star Wars because, look, Star Trek Three is hugely impacted by Star Wars. Right. Um, you know, the ridiculous bar scene and all oh, that yeah. stuff. And... <laughs> well, even just the thoughts, like you made a Zardoz joke earlier. I mean, you watch the dystopian 70s science fiction and it was much smarter than... We're still reeling in the backwash of Star Wars and how. Where is the Zardoz of today? Could you even make it? Would a studio even entertain the idea? And it seems to me that I mean, growing up, we were watching movies like that, like Silent Running, you know, like Logan's Run, A Boy and His Dog. I mean, you look at you think about all that stuff, and it just seemed like it had a lot more on its mind than anything. Well, look at Rollerball. Headier pieces. Look at Rollerball, which could be dismissed as a silly sports movie. It's not. It's all about the core. It's so prescient in the corporatization of sports, of of politics, of and you know, and you look at it. It's a movie called Rollerball, you know, and and yet, and the remake did everything you would think. That that title would have been, you know, right. it's kind of yeah. a goofus and gallant. Yeah, but but uh, <laughs> but yeah, the seventies was aspiring to do, you know, not always succeeding, but to do so much more. And the stuff that didn't really work, it's like the stuff like Damnation Alley, which is just goofiness. I still like Damnation. Yeah, Alley. yeah well, I do too. Monster. <laughs> I want to get one of those Tesla trucks because of the Damnation Alley. Right. That's true. <laughs> get Jan Michael Vincent to drive it for you. Yes. Oh, he's not going to be driving yeah, much that's, anymore. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's true. Way to bring us down. Yeah, thanks, thanks Mark. Darren. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I... <laughs> it's my fault. What do you think of Decker? The, the, you know, obviously, the, there's the idea of introducing these new younger characters, and Shatner and and um, Stephen Collins famously did not get along on that picture because you know he was the new young thing on that movie. Right. But it didn't really feel like in any way he threatened Kirk's position or you know Shatner's. He just doesn't have the charisma. But I'm curious what you thought of that performance. He is sort of a saltless, salting cracker. Um, in many ways, I for me, Decker was a a plot device to further explore Kirk, and mm-hmm. I think he served his purpose in in that way. He's very vanilla. Um, he's he's generically attracted attractive. Um, I was more interested in Ilya because the power of her pussy over all of those people was yeah. astounding, and. And she wasn't, uh, she was a scientist. And mm-hmm. she was like, yeah, like I am this powerful woman that everybody wants because I, I, I am Delton. But she was somebody who uh, felt more real. So I, I was curious about her. And, and really, I was, I was on Spock's journey with the motion picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I think his, his journey in that movie is really, really meticulously plotted. What 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 to you doesn't work about the film? Like where 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 does it let you down? You know, I think there like the the indulgence of the the warp uh, mishap with the asteroid in the wormhole. Mm-hmm. I see it as a burst of action that was like, okay, we need a little something here because we're going to be really right. intellectual for a while. So I get that it serves its purpose, but it it was something that. Um, could have covered much less real estate to mm-hmm. to make its point. Sure. So that moment I was like, ooh, that was wobbly. And like my partner, when we were watching it last night, sort of looked over and was like, okay, 
because he was like, this is amazing. This is amazing. And then at that party, he was like, hmm. Um, and I was like, yeah, I see your point. And I, but I see the point of what it serves in the narrative. Um, and really, there was not much else because I was so mm. intellectually and emotionally stimulated, particularly this latest viewing uh, last night and in, in, in prep for this conversation. The, the, this, and I was aware of it, but I, was, I didn't feel it as deeply as I did last night. Uh, the the Spock V'ger parallel in the storytelling and the you can't go home again aspect of both of their stories. I found you know I love metaphorical storytelling. I love theme. I think it's it's such a wonderful uh, gravy to put on the meat of your story, and and it really provides a, a, a cohesion to storytelling. Uh, and I think they did them both so well. Uh, so that, like, really that moment is the only moment where I was like, mm, this is sort of indulgent. But everything else I found really gripping. And I, you know, like we were talking about earlier, I loved that V'ger selected the most emotionally, physically uh, sophisticated member of the crew to replicate because it knocks Spock aside. Mm-hmm. And then she tries to help him. And he's like, back off, lady. And I was like, oh, wait, you're yeah. like... You're something else. And that's the one that it wanted to meet these people through. When that's interesting. I mean, it's I've never heard it put that way before, you know, in terms mm. of focusing on Ilea. Plus, another thing that you brought up, what we've never seen in Star Trek before up to that point was Spock utterly fail. Yes. And at the beginning, like you say, you can't go home again. He's trying to do something, and he fails utterly. Mm-hmm. I Like, literally, these Vulcan masters, like, yeah, and she just drops that thing, becomes completely meaningless. They turn around and walk away, and we've never seen Spock ever fail. Right. And that's how the movie begins. And he when he utterly sh- fails. And when he shows up on the Enterprise, he's carrying that failure with him. Right. And everybody's like, oh, it's so glad to see you. And he's like, he's but draped in it. Yeah. He's yeah. draped Literally. in it. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's, it's his grieving of like, I guess I can't go home again. Right. I guess I am not this, this you know, biracial uh, being. And you feel his shame of failure. And he can't connect to his friendships because his failure is so present in his eyes. And it's it's really powerful because I think Leonard Nimoy is brilliant in the film and he has to function in such a narrow chasm. But he does so with such wonderful colors that are very subtle. And you get like, you know, we've all been in places where we've been down on ourselves or had shame at our own failures where we can't look our friends in the eyes. We can't look the people who love us in the eyes. And Spock couldn't do that. And I found it really, really human in its storytelling and insightful. He really needed a ship's counselor. He honestly. Did. He did. That's has- why that great observation deck scene is so good mm-hmm. because it's the familiar dynamic between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, but it's completely flipped on his head because McCoy starts to needle Spock and Spock's not having it. He can't throw it back anymore because right. he's in a different place. And then Kirk kind of has to shut McCoy down and you know and and tell him to lay off Spock because Spock can't really defend himself. Right. Right. And it's really interesting. And then the, the whole idea that McCoy's the one who rightly is saying, 
you know, what if he betrays us in the right. state? And, you know, Kirk's like, I could never believe that. But, you know, McCoy's not wrong. Right. right. And he's not just the comic relief or the snarky curmudgeon. I mean, he has, you know, it shows how vital he is to that troika. One of the ironies and, and the sadness that I have for the rush of production and the need to have a movie come out on December 7th, 1979, was that they had to basically release a rough cut. And uh, Nimoy's response after that first uh, um, premiere in Washington, yeah. in Washington, his first interviews were completely negative. Oh, because they had excised his crying scene. They had excised a whole bunch of that important character arc moments for him, and he was mad as hell. He was petulant. Yeah, and and. He was the one who actually started the negative reaction mm. to the motion picture. And uh, luckily, when I worked with Robert Wise in, in 2000, um, we got to integrate all that stuff that, was, that we saw in the longer TV version earlier. Um, it was all finally integrated into the director's edition. And uh, finally, Nimoy got to see that version. And I think he felt a little better about things. But it's so sad that the first negative energy came from Nimoy himself. Especially when the film is, is really Spock's story it from is. the get-go. I mean, like you were saying, Mark, that scene, what I love about that scene that people don't talk about much is when Spock finally says, on Vulcan I began sensing a consciousness. He's mm-hmm. like a dead man walking mm-hmm. until right. he's in that scene and he's finally revealing like, I'm dead, and unless I can meet V'ger or figure out what this is, my life is over. Right. But then the, his performance, he he comes to life, and he's explaining, you know, because I need these guys to help me, so I'm going to tell you what's up. And that's when his performance goes from being, I mean, he's he's just a block of wood, purposefully so. Yeah. And then he gets, that light comes back in his eyes, and it's such a and great... he takes Kirk's hand. That's so good. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You were talking about the whole asteroid wormhole sequence, and and uh, I'm sort of a mixed mind to that because on one hand, it was Gene trying to prove we're scientifically accurate. Right, right. I have my science consultants like right. Isaac Asimov and Yasko von Putkammer, and they tell me <laughs> wormholes are real. <laughs> and, you know, and it's like we're going to show like oh, this is not Star Wars. We have real scientific phenomena. We have action, and, but it's scientifically accurate <laughs> action. <laughs> so on, on that hand, it's completely superfluous. On the other hand. It does have a very valuable contribution to that movie, which is, of course, when Spock orders the phasers and Decker no, belays... No, no. The Kirk, Kirk orders Kirk, the phasers. Kirk, Kirk orders the phasers. And Decker belays the right. phaser order and says, you got to use photon torpedoes. Because it's one thing for, for Kirk to be confused in the right. hallway and not be able to find right. the turbo shaft. But when he actually does something that would the ship because he's totally not briefed on... Um, on, on the, the, the status of, you yeah. know, the, that to me is very powerful. And of course, at least that scene we all love, which is where Decker calls him out on it. And then, you know, uh, McCoy talks to Shatner in his quarters. Yeah. And you the, may be right, Jim. And this, the, the door, the tinted door yeah. closes in front of this wonderful Jerry Goldsmith cue. So for me, like, that's the value of that scene. But I agree. And there's something very weird about the special effects when they fire phasers and destroy the asteroid. Suddenly they're out of the wormhole as though destroying the asteroid has caused the wormhole to, you know, which I don't think that it just got sucked into the wormhole. That's not how wormholes work. That, right, yeah. right. Isaac said it was okay. <laughs> So what do you think the legacy of the movie is? Or does it have one? 
I think it has a wonderful legacy. I think because we've seen the director's cut, because we have that wonderful overture that that really, you know, a la the black hole. I love overtures mm-hmm. on black. I think it's you know because I love film music and I and I think it does set the mood. The movie does have a wonderful uh, place in my heart, and I think for people who really enjoy Star Trek and in, and enjoy kind of like Rob was saying, sophisticated adult storytelling in a, in a science fiction uh, um, genre that it, it, I think it, it holds up for me very well. Yeah. You know, I, I, I would, we, we glossed on, you know, Star Trek two and we talked about Star Trek three. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the other Star Trek movies, but we're kind of out of time, but it's been so I'll great have to come back. Well, we'd <laughs> love to do. have you come back because there's so much more to talk about all these, uh, you know, other Star Trek come movies. Come back later and there's more to tell. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, um, you know, we'd love to talk to you about your, your experience of, of Voyager as well. Um, but, but, you know, given your passion for Star Trek, um, and I think today was we, we've we've discussed this movie, and I would literally say ad nauseum. I mean, we've we've had you know multiple podcasts on this. We we did the panel at Comic Con on it, and yet you know there's still more to unpack. Yeah. I mean, that was really fascinating insight, and I think one of our most interesting shows on the motion picture. So thank you for joining thank you us. for having thank me. You. I and, love this movie, and thank you Ashley and Rob, and thank you our audience. For uh, joining us for another episode of Inglorious Trexperts, if you're a fan of the podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts like The 430 Movie, in which a panel of filmmakers curate a fantasy theme week of classic films every Friday, as well as The Rebel and the Rogue, a Star Wars podcast every Tuesday, and of course, Best Movies Never Made every other Monday, which is a terrific podcast. If you haven't heard it, you should check it out with uh, Steve Scarlatta, who produced uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, and Josh Miller, the writer of Sonic the Hedgehog. Now, I... Th- it sounds. I mean, it, I feel like that's like a joke line. All right, and it's Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> you know, we Jodorowsky <laughs> and Sonic, Sonic the Hedgehog. Okay, now, Jodorowsky is Sonic really, the Hedgehog. It's a, it's would a be great amazing. show, and they're oh, they're great hosts. <laughs> so you can also stream Sonic our uh, podcast on video um, on the Electric Now uh, channel uh, by downloading either Stir Zumo. It's on. I'm uh, going to be on IMDb TV or Distro TV app on your uh, tablet, phone, or TV. So if you really want to see uh, this lovely sweater that Brian's wearing or um uh you know uh, <laughs> <laughs> curious about what darren Doctorman looks like uh or any of these things you can check out uh the show on the electric now app also if you enjoyed this podcast please rate us five stars on apple podcasts that's five not four not three there are five stars two is right out and uh finally a very special thanks of course to bill ritter our sound engineer mixer who makes us sound so great every day and of course everyone here at natalie uh natalie everyone here at natalie die everyone here at electric surge network our producer natalie miscali and of course dean devlin without whom the show would not be possible so until next week keep on trekking and gloriously of course engage This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.